What does a venture capitalist really do? My job is to make money for my investors, but this is not all about just making money. Elaine Stead is one of Australia's longest serving venture capitalists. She's built a distinguished career in over 20 years in the innovation sector, but there's been some challenges along the way. I do question why I've chosen VC, and I think sometimes it's because I'm a masochist. I'll explain. I am quite a sensitive person. I'm very literal and I'm very blunt. My literalness has gotten me into trouble a few times. In this chat, Elaine shares really openly about her family upbringing. I think it was bad in many ways. It gave no example for how to have healthy conflict. Her adult diagnosis with autism. I'm super sensitive to sounds, especially low humming sounds, bands. Drive me insane. And some of the other challenges she's faced along the way. Welcome to The Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life, and this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week, I chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. So my guest today is a scientist turned entrepreneur turned venture capitalist. Today, she's the managing director of Human Venture Capital. Elaine Stead, welcome to the show. Joe, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. To get started, how would you sum up what you do in a few sentences? As a venture capitalist, my main job is to invest money on behalf of my investors into companies that are super high growth and a potential for outsized returns and then deliver those outsized returns to my investors. The way that I approach that is by getting out of the way of the companies that we invest in when they're in their lane of genius, but then put some supports around them in some of the areas that they're not so strong in so that they can keep getting bigger. So we help either do that ourselves or bolster them with the people that can. I imagine there's a whole bunch of factors that go into picking that company that's going to perform really well. But if you were writing a recipe for a successful VC investment, what would some of the main ingredients be? Mostly what you're looking for is to be right when everyone else is wrong. You have to see Mm. where things are moving and have formed a thesis around that. But then in terms of evaluating a company's ability to be successful, Mm. that comes down to a few things. So one is the founder team or the management team. Do you think that they have the character and personality traits that are going to endure Do they have the capability to solve problems, especially problems that they're not trained to solve? Perhaps they've never been solved before. And usually the personality trait that sits behind that is that they'll give it a go and they'll figure it out or they'll bring a team to figure it out, I think is important. And then an ability to grow and learn, which sounds like woo-woo speak, but we had Luke Neer on our podcast the other day and he was talking about how over the 10 years of safety culture, he's had to reinvent himself several times over to keep up with the rate of change of his company and what is required of the role he plays in that company. And Mm. so a tendency or a, a willingness to do that is an important character trait because having that great big idea and the guts to start it is one skill set. And then how you scale that evolves through several sets of skills. And it's not often they are in a person innately. Then there's all the other stuff, which is pretty self-explanatory, like the market has to be big. We have to think that the product or the service that the company developed is really scalable. 
And if it can be distributed in a really scalable way, that is the dream. Those are all the things we tend to filter for, but it's mostly around execution. So do we think this team can actually execute on their plan? Because that's the hard bit. You mentioned at the beginning you need to see the future, see trends emerging and capitalise on those or find companies that can capitalise on those. So what kind of content are you consuming or research are you doing to help you join some of those dots, gaze into some of those stars? <laughs> I walk my dogs a lot, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. If I'm walking to work, I listen to podcasts. If I'm on public transport, I'm listening to podcasts. I also consume a lot of news. I read a lot around the areas that we invest in. What are yeah. the smart people in the industry saying about this particular space that is important for me to know so that I can put a few dots together? It's my hobby to do that. And so that's great because it helps my job, but it is something I would do even if I wasn't working, I think. And this happens to me all the time where I face a problem, I get a pain point and I go, well, someone should solve for that. <laughs> Does that play into some of your thinking when the company is pitching you an idea and you go, but no, I don't really face that or yes, that's absolutely what I see? Is that a factor or is it much more scientific than that? Oh, look, I would love to say it's much more scientific than that. But I think we all bring our personal biases to investment and the people who yeah. say they don't are probably not being honest about the process. If you're a hedge fund guy, then you may have a more mathematical approach. But I think in this space, because it is so problem focused and it tends to be large problem focused or problems that the large cohort of customers will have. It is much easier to identify with what someone's building if you have suffered or experienced that problem mm. yourself. But I also think this is part of why we see a disconnect in the number of female founders who get funding as well, because I think women founders often will solve problems that they have seen themselves in the market in the chat before we started recording, you were mentioning that you've got a prey shoes at home. Well, your wife yeah. does, I should say. Yeah, I only borrow them. Uh, yeah. Just on the odd occasion, that's good to hear. But that came about because Jodie wanted to design shoes herself and wanted to have mm. them made. That wasn't super expensive. And I'm sure that got pitched to a bunch of people who've never experienced that as a problem set. And I, I don't resonate with that problem. It doesn't seem like a big enough problem for us to fund. And this happens all the time. People get funded when there's this Venn diagram of the entrepreneur has a problem that they need to solve and the investor cohort totally understand that problem, either innately because they've seen it or they have enough touch points in the world to see that other people are solving that problem. But we all bring those biases to the equation. And Part of our job for our investors is to try and be aware of those biases so that you've still got to look at it objectively and say, okay, this is a big problem for me, but am I an outlier or am I a, a minor demographic in this whole equation or is this actually something a lot of people experience? And that's what the due diligence process is for and if this is truly an issue that is a nice to have, is it a need to have, and do we think this has got an opportunity to scale up quickly? Hey, it's Joe here. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Every chat in season one of The Thought Follower is very different. I've talked to creatives, economists, elite athletes, CEOs, venture capitalists, and a bunch more along the way. You never quite know what you're going to get. So make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you don't miss an episode. Let's get back to the chat. So you mentioned to be successful in your game, you've got to be contrarian and then you've got to be right. You don't have to go into the specifics, but 
Was there a time when you were wrong? Oh, my God. Like, what did that feel like? <laughs> so many times. And I say that very easily because in venture, you're going to be wrong at least yeah. 40% of the time, right? And depending on your strategy, maybe more. And yeah. the reason for this is because the default position for startups is failure unless they yeah. get product market fit, unless they get investment, unless they get the right team in place. All these things need to happen in order for it to succeed. And timing, timing has to be right as well. So we will be wrong a lot of the time, maybe 50-50, mm -hmm. but that's why we invest in a portfolio. Yes, there will be the inevitable failures, as long as they're not bad failures. And by bad failures, I mean, someone hasn't done the wrong thing. There hasn't been sort mm -hmm. of misadventure or mischievous behavior or fraud or anything like that. Sometimes stuff just fails despite best efforts, timing's wrong, there isn't product market fit, the product or the service doesn't work like it's supposed to. There's a whole bunch of reasons yeah. why things will fail and failures are fine because people learn from them, the entrepreneur learns from it, the investors learn from it. But as long as we've got enough winners in that portfolio yeah. to make up for that, that is how we make our investors' money. And so you said the management team and the founding team is probably the main ingredient. What proportion drives success? I don't know. I can't give you a percentage, but what I will say is there have been so many great companies, great ideas, great products that have failed because the team around them have not risen to the challenge. One of my co-founders, Don McKenzie, says if great products, a big market and capital were sufficient, we'd have a lot more success. So people are the real driver because mm. getting from an idea to something that is in front of every consumer, like an iPhone, is about execution. Yes, you do have to have a great product, but you need to have a great sales and marketing campaign. You need to have a great distribution strategy. You need to build a multinational team that is aligned to the goals of the company, a culture that is inclusive and engaging. And that's just so hard to do if the people side is not buttoned down. So I think it's a big percentage. It's probably the majority. And we've seen a lot of companies that have actually got pretty mediocre products, but have managed to do exceptionally well because the team have risen to the challenge of that execution. Mm. I presume you've seen founders at the early stage when they're putting everything into this to them when now they've just won the money game. Yep. Does that change people? I think it absolutely can, but most entrepreneurs start out not necessarily because they want to be rich or they want to make a lot of money. Usually it's a desire to build, to create. Yeah. It's more about wanting to create something in their vision that is some sort of legacy. And they often go through a lot of adversity through that process as well. They're kind of beaten and battered by the time they get to a position where they've won that money game that you talk about. And so I don't actually see that many entrepreneurs who've been super successful who are incredibly different from where they've started. And there's lots of examples of Australian entrepreneurs that have done exceptionally well. We've got a couple of venture partners in our fund, Adrian DeMarco and Nick Dempsey, they're very wealthy men now, but they are the most humble, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth type people. Luke Anier and Melon Cliff from Canva. And there's Richard White, and CEO of WiseTech. You've got all these people who 
are very wealthy, but they are motivated by something other than money as well. The other thing is most of them come from really humble backgrounds. They're not second or third generation wealthy families. And so they kind of know what it's like not to have money. And that sets their attitude to money too. You see Cliff and Melanie giving Mm. the lion's share of their shares now to the 1% pledge. That's just a remarkable philanthropic contribution that they have desired to make from day one. Money isn't the thing for them, right? That's not Mm. the guiding light, although I'm sure it makes life a hell of a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah. Many of the successful founders seem to come from humble beginnings. Do you think that's correlation or causation? Oh, look, I think (laughs) we've got a view that childhood trauma is not necessary, but it helps. (laughs) Okay. Why? (laughs) Because either creates a bit of a chip on one's shoulder to prove yourself. It usually fosters this search for control over a chaotic world. And entrepreneurs, I think, are really motivated by control. They want to control their environment. They don't want a job that someone else can hire and fire them from. They want to build something so that they can have some security around their life choices, right? Mm. It's difficult to be super motivated if you've had a really lovely life and you haven't needed to want for too much. I think there are definitely people who would fit into that category and are still super motivated, but I think you just see this level of drive in, in someone who is trying to better the situation, whether it's their own situation, whether it's the situation on behalf of the people around them or whether it's to create something that they think is genuinely going to be useful to other people, which is genuinely Mm. where most entrepreneurs come from. The change the world thing is a little bit wanky, but I think what they mean by that is I actually want to create something that is useful to people. That's a strong desire, and I think that that comes from knowing what it's like not to have some of those things that are useful. And what motivates you? Oh, look, I'm a builder and a creator. So I like building and creating, but I have found that my talent in that regard is to help other people build and create. I think of it like a coach. Mm. I used to play basketball. I had coaches my entire life at a relatively high level who were instrumental for me to improve my game. And I see VC as a similar role where you think you've got some advice that is useful and constructive and can help and contribute. You stay away when they're doing their thing and everything's happening really well. And that's where my particular talent lies. And it turns out that is helpful to make our investors money. So that's what I'm motivated by. Why I do it, I think is a bit like what we were talking about. So I came from a low socioeconomic background. I'm a first generation kid of migrants. We didn't have a lot growing up. I have a mum but not a dad and I really want to make sure that my family are taken care of. That's been the sole motivator really for me my entire life. And that stuff is instructive of what we choose to do as adults. I could hardly be more privileged being a straight white male, you know, born in Australia, etc. But the thing that motivates me is making sure that my kids and my family have everything that they need. And for me, the process is how can I plug the skill set that I've got into an avenue that's going to achieve that, like the path of least resistance. It can't just be about I want to take care of my family and I've got this skill set. 
you must get something out of it. Yeah, but for me, that all goes into the equation mm. because I won't be able to perform at that level. Mm. If I'm not enjoying yeah. it, I won't be great at it. So do you see that as selfish? Like I often see that as selfish. I know it's for my family, but there's nothing about changing the world or about giving back. No, I don't think it's selfish to want good things for the people you love. I also don't think it's a bad thing if entrepreneurs want to make a lot of money <laughs> for themselves yeah. or mm. they have a hero or a saviour complex or something. Who cares if that's their motivator? As long mm. as they're not hurting anyone and as long as it's net positive, that I think should be the way in which they get measured. That's what we should be focused on. So you mentioned you played basketball. Is there a moment in the VC process that feels like winning a championship? No, honestly not. I do question why I've chosen VC and I think sometimes it's because I'm a masochist. I'll explain. The fun part is getting to know companies and making the investment in the first place. That's like getting married. It's super exciting. Everyone's yeah. looking forward to the future ahead. And then the process of helping companies through their next five to seven years is really up and down and tough, right? Sometimes those companies love you for the help and advice you give them. Sometimes they utterly hate you. And I guess sometimes that's like a marriage too. And then eventually either it falls over and that whole process is quite painful and time-consuming. Everyone loses in that situation. And sometimes you'll get a win and mm. you'll exit an investment and you'll be able to give investors money back. But that is not like a euphoric process. That's a, hey, I okay. promised you this 10 years ago. I'm now delivering on it. But I've still got these other five things I have to try and deliver on too in order to get you. Yeah, okay. So there is actually not a lot of joy through that whole exit process. There is joy in the helping and the building and the constructing if that's what you love doing. Okay. It's a long process where you actually have to love the process rather than the outcome. But you are only judged on your outcome. It's delayed gratification and that gratification is short-lived and not all that exciting really. So going back to your role as a bit of that coach and support for these companies, you talked about your motivation. What about your skill set like or your personality even you know, makes you good at that? I'm one of those people who can be deeply analytical when I need to be and also quite creative. I have a view that everyone is kind of on that spectrum and it's just how much you embrace those two things. The skills I bring to companies is the ability to see the data and be very data-driven about decisions and be creative around problem solving, which is actually where a lot of companies want help. Mm -hmm. I've got this problem. I'm struggling with how to solve it. I could battle away at it myself and eventually get there. But if you guys have seen this before or you've got an idea on how to do it better, love to hear from you about that. That's one area where I think I'm useful. The other is that I have a good read of people. So I'm pretty good at seeing underneath people's personas and their facades and I can read between the lines about where their brain and heart is at and an ability to coach people through some of that stuff. That tends to be my superpower. And so as a coach, I think it's less about the technical aspects and more about the mindset aspects. What's at the heart of why you said that? What's at the 
part of the conflict that you're dealing with at the moment and make sure that this conflict doesn't become destructive and that it is actually constructive. That's my kind of skill set, I think. How did you get good at that? I have no idea. I don't know. I think because I am a creative person, I am quite a sensitive person. I've always been like that. And Mm. you don't see it as a skill. You think of skills as things you can put on your CV. But actually, as I've gotten older, I've seen that that's been a thing that's been able to de-escalate situations when they needed to be de-escalated. It's been how I've mediated rifts between people. It's how you can manage stakeholders who have opposing views and build some consensus. It's been a skill that is so necessary, but it is incredibly underrated and it's almost impossible to communicate that to people in a CV. Mm. (laughs) So, and if you try to, you just sound wanky. (laughs) Hey, it's me again. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the chat. Don't forget to give the thought follower a rating and share it with your friends. Otherwise, reach out to me on LinkedIn with any guest suggestions or feedback on the show. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get back to the episode. So, I've had a bit of a theory bubbling away. You mentioned how your dad wasn't around or my folks divorced when I was really young as well. And I found myself being quite good at picking up cues, body language, the things that aren't said but that are meant. Sometimes my wife and I are arguing and the kids are there. And so it's much more explicit. Mm -hmm. There is some tension. But when you, as a kid, like observe that, you just have your mum or your dad sitting you down or they're grumpy. It's not necessarily vocalised what the source of the tension is, but you need to be able to assess it. And kids are very sensitive and very perceptive. And I sometimes wonder if that's maybe where some of that comes from. I might also not actually be good at it (laughs) and just think I am. Yeah, I don't know. In my case, I wasn't raised by a single parent. I had both my parents, but they had a terrible relationship and they never fought in front of us. So everything was implicit as opposed to explicit. Mm. I think it was bad in many ways because it gave no example for how to have healthy conflict in a relationship, which I think kids need that modelled, right? I'm sure that my parents absolutely informed the reason why I am more perceptive on those things than many. I've been diagnosed as autistic And the way that that gets expressed in women is quite different to the way that that is expressed in men, particularly adult women who have not been diagnosed as children. How it manifests is they're extremely sensitive. They're incredibly perceptive of others' emotions and feelings. And for some reason, that's a good thing in my current role. But maybe if Mm. I chose something else, it would have been a huge liability. I don't know. Interesting. Really interesting. So I was reading your article and in that you said that you're a capitalist and your primary role is to make your investors money. It struck me that having a political ideology in your job title is pretty rare. You put the two words together, venture capitalist, it's about investing in companies. But then when you stated this, I'm a capitalist, what does that mean to you? My job is to make money for my investors. So by definition, I am a capitalist. But I had written a previous blog about how I was a socialist capitalist (laughs) because I also have a view that we take that whole concept to its extreme in many ways and Mm. we're not distributing the wealth in the way that I think is fair and equitable. For example, I'm a 
big supporter of universal basic income. I am a supporter of a number of schemes that I think we should increase around how we take care of the less fortunate or the more vulnerable in our society. And I have deliberately picked an industry where this is not all about just making money. That is the one thing we get measured on. But if Mm. we just wanted to make money, we would be doing very different things. What we're trying to do is create new industries. We're trying to build new products, which hopefully are useful to people. There is an element of wanting to do those things that have a greater impact than just making our investors money, I think. The socialist capitalist, that's a doozy. Um, I say that, though, without making any firm comments. Socialism has its challenges as well, but I am very focused on how do we do that in a way that has the most positive impact. Absolutely. That makes sense to me. So what do you measure yourself on? How do you define success for yourself? Whether I deliver on what I have committed to people. That's the core thing I measure myself on, whether that is in the micro My co-founders, if I tell them I'm going to do something by Wednesday, am I doing it? And then on the macro, that plays into will I deliver on the returns? I have said to our investors we can achieve with our investment strategy. Am I doing no harm to the companies that we invest in? And in fact, are we a net positive for those companies? All of that stuff. I do measure that if I feel like I'm not doing those things, whether it's for my family or my dogs or my co-founders or my companies, it mortifies me. Are there steps that you need to take or routines that you have, practices you follow to give yourself the best chance of having that success? Yes, but it's not as fancy or scientific as what I see other people do. Exercise has been one of the ones that has fallen by the wayside recently. So my co-founder and I had an accountability session and now keep checking in on each other to make sure that we're actually doing that stuff because we recognize Mm -hmm. how important that is for being able to continue to deliver on what we're doing and for our own personal mental health. From a mental health perspective, it's that I take my medication every day, (laughs) that I do things that give me energy. And sometimes that's consuming content and reading going down a rabbit hole into something I'm super interested in. Sometimes it's bed rotting watching Netflix because I'm really introverted. I used to be that person who would keep going, keep going. You're super low energy, but like you've just got to battle through this or endure it. Now I'm very cognizant that I need to do things that give me energy and try to just get a lot of sleep. I've been a poor sleeper my entire life, but when I'm really focusing on it and I get good unbroken sleep, oh, man, I just feel like a million bucks. Anyone who's ever had small children will agree with that statement. Like it is just such a game changer. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. (laughs) How old are your kids? Three and one. Yeah. We're actually celebrating last night. We got to 4 Oh, wow, that's exciting. Without a wake up. That was huge. That is. That that wasn't the million bucks. That was 750 That's all right, though. It's the weirdest thing, like it. But all the stuff that we've built in the world and created and all the problems we've solved and everything that we've got, closing your eyes for eight hours, lying down yep. is still the thing. It puts all those other life hacks or biohacks to shame. The problem is to get that right, you have to do all these other things like avoid alcohol and have some sleep hygiene, which is conducive, and you've got to keep your stress levels down, which is easier said than done. There's a few dominoes. That's right. So it means Mm. you've got to miss out on a few of life's pleasures, but that's okay. The sleep definitely makes up for it. (laughs) 
it sure does. So you you absolutely don't have to answer this, but you touched on the autism and, and your medication. You spoke about some of the superpowers that that gives you around sensitivity and reading others and things like that. Are you open to talking about some of the, the hard Yeah, sure. Happy to. I'm super sensitive to sounds, especially low humming sounds, fans. <laughs> drive me insane it will sometimes cause panic attacks and I always just thought that was me I'm very literal and I'm very blunt and sometimes that's a good thing because if you don't want there to be any doubt about a message being very blunt and very literal is a good thing and my literalness has gotten me into trouble a few times so I take what people say to me very literally (laughs) If someone says they're going to do something or they feel a certain way, or I will just take them at face value on that. And that has set me up for being scammed by people on occasion. I've had bosses who say to me, you have got to stop taking me so literally, Elaine. It's caused miscommunication at different times. And it has been one of the reasons why social media was such a lifeline for me for a, a lot of times. It allowed me to kind of communicate with people in a way that was really disconnected and sometimes just being too literal or too honest or too transparent about stuff would just get me into trouble and and I couldn't understand why saying certain stuff that was honest and transparent would be such a bad thing or liability it's made my relationships really tricky like I've never married I've never wanted to marry I've had a few long-term boyfriends, but it's just not a thing for me. And I think that's definitely a result of my autism. So yeah, there's a lot of ways in which I think there's been negative impacts as well as positive impacts. Sometimes I suffer some of that blindness. Yep. Someone said something and then they do the opposite. And I'm just completely dumbfounded. You said you're blunt and you're direct. And my experience is some people respond really well to that, but some people don't. Mm. So what's the mix in the cohort of founders? Are more of them looking for that direct, blunt approach or do you sometimes get things wrong? And, and I definitely get things wrong. But I think what I have learned to do over the years, I've worked out that this is not going to make me friends and influence people. Yeah. <laughs> I need to find yeah. a way to wind this back a little bit or make me work better with the world. If you've got any level of self-awareness or mm. interest in, in engaging with other people, you will do that. There are some people who just cannot. That is just the way they are and it's very difficult for them to mm. change their way of approaching interactions with other humans. But I am one of those people who can. Sometimes I'm not. There will be times that I'm not as deft in the way that I'm delivering information to people as I should be. There will be times at which my tendencies are a net negative, but I try mm. to be just very alive to that. And if the people I work with most closely all know my situation and know that they're allowed to just say, Lainey, you probably could have delivered that better or Lainey, (laughs) you need to sit down with this person and have this conversation because this is going to continue to cause some problems. So I'm lucky that I feel like I can be open about that stuff. But I also Mm. don't know another way. Like it's my default is to just be super open about that stuff because it causes me too much anxiety to hide it Mm. and pretend it doesn't exist. So interesting to hear you talk about that because the way I've always described it is like you said, you learn over time. I've got this Rolodex of things that you don't say at certain times and every now and then you say that thing and you observe the reaction, which is bad, and you go, don't push that button in that situation. And that's the way I think of it. Really interesting. So big subject change. What does thought leadership mean to you? Mm. It's challenging people on their stance on a certain thing. 
to be a thought leader, you need to have thought deeply about it yourself and you need to have facts, information and data to challenge people on a particular line of thought or way of thinking mm. or way of doing because there's lots of people I don't agree with but I like listening to why they think the way that they do so long as they're not silly about it. If they've got good rationale and good data and a point of view that I can go, huh, never thought about it that way. Mm. I love that, especially when yeah. it's from a political side or an ideological side that is not one that I would normally subscribe to. I try to follow people on Twitter who I don't agree with, but who I think are sensible or rational about how they convey their thoughts because I like being yeah. challenged about that. And it forces you to stress test your own logic. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot out there, but if you could choose one, who's one thought leader that you're following oh. and why? Well, actually, this will be unusual name, but Stephen Hale is a economist who teaches a course at Adelaide at Torrens University, which is based on modern monetary theory. And he would say, don't credit me, credit the people who've come up with the economic concept of modern monetary theory. But I find his thought leadership powerful because the reason he is so driven is that we're in the midst of climate change. We have a limited amount of time to do what we can with limited resources. Yeah. We cannot have an economic theory which is predicated exclusively on continuous productivity growth because we do not have the resources to support continuous productivity growth. So how do we take an ecological approach to thinking about economics that still makes sure that countries can be economically successful but does it within the constraints of the resources that we have? And so the way he thinks about that stuff has been incredibly inspiring for me. So Stephen Hale, he's on Twitter. He started Modern Money Lab, which is the not-for-profit group, and then that runs the economics course, which is the first economics course in the world on modern monetary theory, and anyone all over the world can join it. It's online. I find it fascinating and has really challenged my thinking over the last three years. I remember from economics, finite games, infinite games have wildly different strategies. Mm. I guess what we've been playing up till now is on the basis that this is an infinite game, yep. but what we've realised is if stuff doesn't change pretty quick, this is going to be a finite Absolutely. game. Absolutely. We can either run at the wall that we're going to hit or we can do what we can with the time that we have left to avoid that finite game, particularly if that finite game is actually going to cause more economic disparity. And there's a lot of people mm. who will poo-poo modern monetary theory and say, oh, aren't you just saying you should just print more money? Not the solution for everything, but it's a much more complicated equation than that. I just would encourage people to read a bit more on it. A good starting point is The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. She's a Yale professor and was advising Bernie Sanders when he was doing his run for the US presidency. Stephen's point is we need to do something different. When you look at our current economic policy, interest rates are not the thing that is going to help push that inflation mm. down. And so it's hurting the parts of our society who are least able to absorb that and transferring wealth from the least wealthy to the banks. <laughs> It doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense. And so we've got to openly and candidly have a discussion about what yeah. we might need to do in the future because it's not what we've done. It's not what's worked for the last 70 years. I've talked to a bunch of people for this show and all the chats are very different, but I keep hearing these underlying sensation that something's not right about how things are at the mm. moment, whether that's like the employee-employer relationship, the work-life balance that is just getting harder and harder, and then the economy. Yeah. And 
It just feels something really fundamental is broken. Yeah. And this strain is being felt against the machine or society. Everyone I talk to is identifying some of that. Do you see yourself as a thought leader? No. No, I don't. I don't think I have that leadership in thought around what the future holds that other talented people like Nikki Shabak does from Blackbird. But I think I'm an okay communicator of thoughts <laughs> and leadership that other people have that I consume and then distill into something that will be useful for the people who I work with, whether it's portfolio mm. companies or the broader ecosystem. Have you figured out what the end game is for you or like what does the future look like? I will continue to do this as long as the universe lets me. So, you know, I've had a few near-death experiences professionally and I'm still here. So I think that says that I really want to do what I'm doing because it would have been easier to do other things, I think. Mm. So I'll continue to do this as long as people will have me. And that, by that, I mean investors and portfolio companies. And look, I'm not retiring anytime soon. I got to... <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff I need to do before that can happen. So if I can do this for the next 20 years, I'll, I'll be really happy. To be honest, if I'd made a bunch of money, I'd still be doing this. I'm a mentor for the Griffin Accelerator in Canberra, and that's a 35 mentors across Australia who are mostly high net worth investors who are engaging with the Accelerator because they want to help those companies and then invest in those companies at the end. And all these people that don't need to work, they're all very wealthy people, but they just love mm playing in this space and helping these companies yeah. and I think this ecosystem does attract that type of individual and if I'm ever lucky enough to retire one day my mum only just retired she's 75 I don't mind <laughs> every additional year is a bonus that's what the future holds I think hmm. amazing so would you describe that as like you found your calling or your purpose yeah, I think so. It is the thing that gets me out of bed every day and has me genuinely excited because it's energising, right? I like to do things that give me energy. So I've worked as a bookies assistant. I've cleaned warehouses. I genuinely think I could probably find purpose in whatever I did. Like I always enjoyed every job I was lucky enough to get. And so it's about your mindset, right? But yeah, I love what I do. And I know you've been doing a bit of podcasting lately. Yeah. What's, tell us a bit about the show. So Tribe Global VC, we have started a podcast and God knows why we did, but mostly I think we were having these conversations anyway and we thought, well, maybe this will be helpful to the ecosystem. And I know that's a very overused word, but we thought we'll give it a try and we'll see what the feedback is. So we do two episodes a week. One is an interview, a deep dive with a founder mostly to try and draw out some patterns or some tips or strategies that they have developed to guide them through that process when that process is something that universally other founders are going through. Then the second is a weekly news wrap-up where we look at bits of news that are interesting to the startup and investment space and then just provide our own commentary on it. Where can we find the podcast? Well, it's on all good podcast platforms. But we're also on YouTube. So we have a YouTube channel, the Tribe Global VC YouTube channel. All of them you can find on our website. Nice. I'll, uh, I'll have to check that out. Please do. Elaine, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for sharing so openly. My pleasure. I really enjoyed the yeah, chat. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.